I haven't been in here for a couple of hours. But I've been in here a fair bit during the day and been with some of you in small groups and one-to-ones. And in the hall with you in silence and being in the, we could say, the field that we're creating here together has its own kind of uh, presence. And there's been a lot that you've been cultivating these days. So just for a moment, I want you to turn your mind toward what are the wholesome qualities that are being cultivated. So that's not to say that there aren't still things that, you know, a glitch or you bump up against or that are difficult. But what is, what is coming through that you're noticing? That is wholesome, that is beneficial, that supports deepening. And some of the things I've been struck by, by both meeting with you and um, being in the hall together, is a deepening in the quality of gentleness, of presence that's here, of a kind of attunement that you or we are beginning to have to the present. Deepening in stillness. So as I say this, I don't want you to compare and say, yeah, but I'm not very still yet. But just seeing if you can sense where this is happening. Often these qualities come in through the back door. Like we're kind of looking for all these things, kind of with our looking mind, searching, searching, yeah, nothing happening, yeah. And actually through the back door, if we settle back, we start to notice, yeah, actually there is a growing sensitivity to the stillness here. Maybe you've noticed it in the room times or in you or you're able to stay with for just a little longer a lot of heart today I mean it was the theme in the Qigong and in the compassion meditation it seemed that many of you were open to that again doesn't mean you have to have particular heart experience but open to that territory whatever it is revealing so what I, want, what I want to speak about tonight is um, how all these conditions that are being cultivated are fertile, fertile ground for insight to arise. And what I want to speak about tonight is the quality that we haven't emphasized a whole lot yet, but we're beginning to a bit more tonight, which is the quality of investigation. In the Pali language, it's called Dharma Vichaya, the investigation of states, the investigation of Dharma, of things as they are. And if you know anything about the Buddha's teachings, um, it has a lot of uh, quite wonderful pieces of the map of the territory of awakening. And one of the bits of the map is called the Seven Factors of Awakening. Factors of the mind that come together, that conduce together to support us to open to insight on different levels. 
And there's mindfulness is one of the factors and uh, calm and joy and um, equanimity, balance. Uh, I'll try and remember the list before the talk's up. If not, I'll tell you tomorrow. But when asked which of these factors of enlightenment was most conducive to awakening, the Buddha said very clearly, the factor of investigation. This is the most proximate cause of awakening, of waking up. So I want to speak about what this looks like for us here. Part of the Buddha's unique contribution to the spiritual world is his emphasis on this Dharma Vichaya, this investigation of phenomena. So we meditate, we start off being with the breath, mind wanders and goes all kinds of places, we come back, we train, retrain. The point is not to be with the breath. The point now is we have enough stillness, enough gentleness, enough attunement, steadiness, is to start to investigate our experience as it is. And what investigation means isn't the kind of investigation that's just an intellectual investigation, which is, you know, uh, well, you know, you you know how intellectual investigation goes to. Why is this like this? And what's that? And and we can, and it can be very interesting. But this is a phenomenological investigation where we're investigating phenomena as they arise. So the attention that we've been gathering over the days, right, a little bit more attention with right where we are. We use the light of that attention to get curious and interested. What's going on here? Now this is different from the discursive what's going on here, which is what's going on here is I'm fed up and that's because they cooked that same thing for lunch and I didn't do this and this and this. The discursive story, which has a place, which has a place, but this is actually pointing to something different the light of our attention, that capacity to pay attention, starts to shine the light on things as they arise. Breath as it arises, feeling as it arises, thought as it arises, mind state as it arises, sensation as it arises. And what we're asked to perceive is, be with what's arising And the Buddha says, see its origin and its cessation. See its arising and see its disappearance. See its coming and see its going. He says, look at anything, anything, anything in your experience. And if you stay steady and close, you see that it is of this pattern. (coughs) It's of this nature. So when we turn our attention to the experience of breathing... Even if you've only hung out for one breath these whole three days, right? we're not evaluating it in those terms. We're evaluating it or we're interested in that moment when you're right here. Some attention and you're just a little bit interested. And what you see if you stay with the experience as it's arising is this breath. It comes as if from, I mean we could have the technical scientific answer, But phenomenologically, the breath arises, reaches a climax, reaches a peak, stays for a while, and starts to drop back. And if we're with that, with a curiosity, it drops back, it drops back, it drops back into the stillness, 
kind of a nothing there for a moment and the breath arises. The stillness lets us perceive that in a completely new way. Our mind already knows that things in this world come and go. This isn't news to anybody here. So we already have that insight. But when there's a little bit of stillness and we're meeting the experience just as it is, that understanding of coming and going, of ebbing and flowing, of the tide coming in, the tide coming out, it's the nature of this life. It's unstoppable. It's unstoppable that anything that shows up reaches the kind of peak of its presence and is of its nature to die back and we can get that deeper than the intellect deeply from the cells such that that insight breaks something open in us it doesn't have to be a dramatic break it can be a very quiet break breaks open the view that actually my happiness is going to be achieved when I've got hold of the things I want. This is the conventional view. My happiness will be here when I've got hold of the things that I want and got rid of all the things I don't want about myself, about my life. And that view, if we hang out long enough with ourselves, gets severely challenged because we see whatever it is that comes to us, breath, feeling, mind state, Anything, anything that arises is on its journey to move on. And rather than this bring a depressing insight, which from the conventional perspective it is, like, what, is there nothing I can have? Is there nothing I can kind of say, gather to me and say, this is mine? From the point of view of liberation, this is really good news. It frees us up to come into relationship with things in the knowledge that they come, they stay, they grace us with their presence or trouble us with their presence or whatever they do. And their journey is to move. Their nature is to move. That leaves us free to let our hands empty. Let's us breathe out. Start to be even more interested in what this life is, inner and outer. So the Buddha says, investigation of states, investigate even the states that he says are really good, like mindfulness, or investigation, or equanimity, balance. He says, look at those two. They also come and go. We might think, hold on a minute. Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing here? He says, look at them. Notice when they're absent. Notice when they're present. The mind states we were talking about this morning, the difficult mind states, craving, aversion, despair, hang out closely. On the tide you can see that it's also of the nature to come and go. So, how do we support this quality of investigation? Because these factors aren't random, they're not ours to control, we can't keep them but they can be supported. An investigation is very close to 
quality of curiosity. Curiosity that probably all of us had access to somewhere along the line. Maybe we still do. Maybe you're still a really curious person. Curious about how things work. Curious about those red poppies out there on the grass. Curious about other people. And it's something that we see very often in children. A very natural curiosity. They want to investigate the world. Kind of want to find out. What's that? They kind of stick their nose in it and you know, taste it. Or very little children, very little babies. It's kind of natural qigong you see in the pram or something. They're kind of, kind of sensing into their limbs. Like, oh, what's that? You know, what's that? Not necessarily asking that question, but the very natural undisturbed state of investigating this, this life. First the physical life, the licking life, the touching life, the tasting life, the sucking life. Right? It's very natural quality, and then as we toddler and grow up, and somewhere along the line, some of us stop being curious. We kind of get fixed or locked into an idea that actually to be an adult is pretty serious business. You've got to stop playing now. And awakening looks like a really serious business, so you definitely shouldn't play at Guy House. And what happens when we have that view? Because it's true, the part that the child wouldn't bring to this retreat, possibly, is the steadfastness, discernment, patience, perseverance, um, that deep uh, thirst, yearning uh, for going beyond, going deeper, looking more deeply. But they might bring the play. So if we come in here and think in the meditation, it's really easy to happen. It's like, oh, right, meditation. This is where you have to pay attention, buckle down, tighten your belt, get serious to get awakened, or whatever it is we want. Right? And then we come in here and, yeah, we put the weights on. The pressure goes on. It's like we're going to work in a job we don't really like, but it's good for us, you know, pays the, pays the bills. Okay, into the meditation hall, take our briefcase, overcoat. Hat, umbrella, right, okay. I'll have a rest afterwards, you know, once it's 9.30. Phew, done my day at work, right, can sign off now, clock out. Ha, fantasy. Right? If we treat it like it's this big work we have to do, yes, it does require dedication, absolutely, but what happens to this factor of curiosity, this factor of lightness, of play, of wanting to look deeply? Where did it go for you in your life if you don't have access to it now? I was very struck uh, by a personal story when my father was quite close to his death about six years ago now. And he was still in his flat where he lived. And I was with him, staying there, think taking care of him at the time. And came into his bedroom in the morning and he was already quite sick and... You know, and he was quite close to death and different things were happening in his mind. But he woke up that morning with a completely blissful expression on his face. And I was really struck. He looked absolutely radiant and blissful. I said, wow, 
what's going on? And he said, oh, I just had a dream. And he wasn't the kind of dad that told me ever about I never heard ever about my dad's dreams. He's kind of down-to-earth, practical guy. He goes, I just had a dream. I said, yeah. He goes, oh, I dreamt I was a 10-year-old boy. And I had this big uh, kind of machine. Someone had given me this big machine to play with. You know, it had all kind of cogs and wheels and pulleys and, you know, Meccano-y type things or, you know, all these kind of things going on. And as he was telling me this radiance and bliss on his face, I said, yeah? And he goes, and I was in awe. How did it work? How did it work? And in the dream, he was in the relationship with this thing. How does it work? And the joy there can be, maybe you remember back to that or maybe you know that for yourself when there's something you're really interested in how does it work? how does it work? and what would it be to bring that quality to this this me, what we call me that we overlook in search of happiness how does it work? how does it work this mind, body How does it work? And we can read about it, and that's interesting. And we can study it in the present, because this is where it opens up. This is where the insight, where our views can start to shift, and a new relationship is born. So, my favorite example of insight, just to give a a flavor of of what what it's like. It can be on many, many levels. Sometimes it's quiet and almost imperceptible, sometimes it's louder. But this is a story of a man practicing this form within the prison system in North America. Some places there's mindfulness practice and insight meditation practice taught for uh, prisoners that want to do it, want to practice. And this man... uh, was receiving the instructions from the teacher every week and the teacher would come back every week and he'd go away and practice in as best uh, conditions as he could find to practice in. And each week the teacher would just ask them to report on what they'd been noticing from their practice. And I heard this directly from the tutor, the person that was the teacher in this particular prison. And he said... um, He told of one man who was really excited one week and the teacher came back in and the teacher said to him, yeah, what what have you been noticing this week? And he said, he was like really full of energy. He said, you know rain? And the teacher said, yeah, I know rain. He (coughs) He said, it's not just rain. It comes down in drops. Right? So this man, for whatever set of conditions in his life, had never seen that. He'd seen rain as a solid concept, a solid phenomena. Because of a little bit of presence, of steadiness, of mindfulness, he could start to see, wow, that which I've always thought to be a certain way isn't. It's actually this thing that comes in drops. So whatever are our views that we're holding to, that we don't even know we're holding to. That's the thing about insight. Until it kind of comes, we don't know. We've had a fixed view of how it's been before. Like that man, you couldn't have told him before, excuse me, rain is a thing that comes down in drops. So yeah, so what? 
But it's that discovery, that discovery that our view of things actually has been wrong. And that's the really good news. Because it starts to open things out. The fixedness, the fixedness of myself in relationship to this world starts to open out. And there starts to be a lot more room. A lot more room. So, investigation, the Buddha's uh, uh, offering of this factor, very well described and uh, explored, is asking us to look deeply to see if there's views that we're carrying about existence, about reality, about ourself, about my mind, my body, that we're fixing to, that we're holding to, that we don't see yet. And if we keep investigating, through direct experience, they start to open out. And mindfulness is something that supports investigation. So, for example, if we have the view, many people have the view, right? But if, and we can even be told it's a wrong view, but it doesn't make any difference till the real insight comes. We might have the view that there's something wrong with me. You know, that, that even if people are nice to me and, and all these affirmations and all of that, somewhere in me I feel like there's something wrong, something not quite right. <coughs> if we have that view, what follows on? It's like we're seeing the world through that, seeing ourselves through that lens. When we have a view, what follows on is our whole life is conditioned by that view. So if you look at the teachings, the Buddha has this another model of the Eightfold Path. Starts with the right view. Because whatever is our view, it conditions our thought. So if there's something wrong with me, that, that sense that something's wrong with me, then the thought is conditioned, there is something wrong with me. And then from there, our speech is conditioned by that view. So that I'm either trying to compensate for the fact that I think there's something wrong with me, or I tell everyone there's something wrong with me. Our action and our livelihood in the world kind of follows on from that view. Either we're compensating, trying to prove that there isn't something wrong with me, or we're in the place of believing there is. Never she coming right back to the place of what is this me who I think there's something wrong with putting a big question mark there, coming into direct relationship with the sense of myself as I arise, being willing to have a question mark, curiosity and investigation requires something very special, which is that we're willing to suspend the belief that we already know how things are. This kind of healthy doubt. This is the healthy doubt. Willing to put a question mark. Saying, actually, I don't know. It really seems like it. really seems like there's something wrong with me. And people tell me there is or they tell me there isn't. But examine this thing that we're calling ourself. This phenomenon. So this is one place where our investigation can go. What is this that I'm believing? We might have a different kind of self-view, that we are fantastic. 
It's a different kind of conditioning. Right? We also want to put a nice little question mark by that too. Not because we want to say you're not fantastic, but any, 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 any view of myself that I'm believing as the truth is limiting. The first one is limiting because it's painful. The second one is limiting because any view that we're living within, it's a view. It's something that's fabricated. It's something that's built up. It's conditioned. I might think I'm brilliant if my parents always told me I was and it gets confirmed at school and blah, 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 and I might end up believing it. And then there's me brilliant over there and you not brilliant over there and off my life goes, right? That's not very satisfying. And it's anything. And there's so many views we have about ourselves. It's extraordinary. And then we're asked to question, what is that? What is that? If my view is happiness is having all the good experiences and pushing away the bad ones, then we'll come to Gaia House, that's the view, and we'll try and get the good experiences and push away the bad ones. And then after two days we've only had bad ones, we think, well, this isn't a good idea. Right? I haven't questioned the view yet. Maybe my view is, uh, need some investigation here. We might have the view, the opposite sort of view, oh, freedom's going to come if I really can suffer a lot. That's what the Buddhists say. I know it's not about being happy now, and I've got to suffer a lot. So we're looking for every opportunity to suffer here. Oh, this is good, I'm suffering now. I must be getting somewhere. Right? It's another view. It's another view, and it's so easy to pick them up, isn't it? You could easily sit here and we talk about dukkha. It's like, okay, that's what's supposed to happen now. Good, finally it's happening. I must be getting somewhere. I must be burning through something. I must be... It's a view. It's a view. And if you can see that investigation, being curious, requires that we completely suspend making those views absolute so we can come into a fresh relationship and find out, how is it right now? Here's a story. It's called The People Who Attain... from the Sufi tradition. Imam al-Ghazali relates a tale from the life of Isa. Isa one day saw some people sitting miserably on the wall by the roadside. He asked, What is your affliction? They said, We have become like this through our fear of hell. He went on his way and saw a number of people grouped disconsolately in various postures by the wayside. He said, What is your affliction? They said, Desire for paradise has made us like this. He went on his way until he came to a third group of people. They looked like people who had endured much, but their faces shone with joy. Isa asked them, What has made you like this? They answered, The spirit of truth has made us like this. We have seen reality, and this has made us less interested in lesser goals. And Isa said, these are the people who attain. It's 
So the story tells us the main difficulties that we get into, the main two defilements. That which is clouding our luminous mind that I spoke about this morning, the fear of hell, pushing away what I don't want, pushing away difficult experience, or the desire for paradise, trying to get the good experience. We're left, both of them are left miserable in this story. But the ones who go deeper investigate what's true in this moment. This is our pathway. And we don't like to hear this often. It's like, oh no. Can't you just tell me how to get to paradise? But sometimes we have to, well we do seem to have to learn this again and again and again. It's coming into contact with what's here. It's our door. So the first level, we could say, of insight, insight can arise in many, many ways. don't want to kind of over-define it. But one whole area of insight is insight into myself. What I call me. What pushes my buttons, what lights up my heart, what winds me up, what gets me cool. Now the things that are particular to us, our, our nuances. And, and on retreat, we have a very intimate encounter with ourselves, don't you? Don't we? Whether we like it or not, I, I met a woman a few years ago who went to do a long retreat in a hermitage with some nuns. They, had, uh, they were contemplative nuns and they had cells that other women could go to to practice up in the hills. And um, she, when she got there, she had to be interviewed by the nuns to see if she was suitable. And they said, um, you haven't come looking for God, have you? <laughs> or something like this. She, she was kind of, oh, just come here to practice. And they said, people always come looking for God. And what they find is themselves. Right? First. We don't have to get into the God part, luckily it's not in our dogma here. But right, We come looking for whatever, paradise, happiness, first encounters with ourself. And sometimes it's excruciating, isn't it? It's like, oh, I just want the paradise part. But we meet ourself here. We see the ways that, yeah, what pushes our buttons, what lights our heart, what turns us off, what turns us on. All the buttons. Someone presses one of those buttons and then there's this reaction. Someone presses one of those buttons and those reactions. And in the beginning we feel so conditioned by all these reactions, you know. I'm in the dinner queue. I'm at the back of the queue. Everyone's moving way too slowly. I hate everyone in the queue. Fantasy arises of kind of shoving them along. Getting some momentum here. Maybe I'll get a drum beat going and just move them on a bit, can't bear it. Sooner or later, we've, after several meals, we realise actually they don't look like they're suffering. It's me who's suffering, trying to get this thing moving a bit here. Right? Or 
Actually, I thought I was a really nice person till I came to Guy House. So I'm sure I was last Friday, whenever it was I came, and, and we come here and find out something we didn't know about ourselves, which is actually, I'm not that nice. I'm kind of angry and aversive. Wow, I wish I didn't know about anger and aversion, because at least I used to think I had the view I was nice. I was happy in that illusion. Or maybe we thought we were really angry and aversive, and we come here and actually discover some real tenderness and sweetness, and it's like, oh, that shouldn't be here. What's that doing here? And I should be hard and tough. Many, many, many things, many examples. Our identity gets constantly challenged here. And it's not always comfortable at first. We like to reinforce our identity. Part of our safety from our conventional view is reinforcing our identity. Having people reflect back who we think we are and want to be seen as whether that's good or bad. Some of us want an identity of being the good one. Some of us like an identity of being the bad one. It's not a freedom in either, if it's what we're fixing to. Some of us like the identity of being the one that no one notices. Some of us like the identity of being one that everyone notices. Good or bad, being in the spotlight, being not in the spotlight, are fine. What we want to see is where the clinging to them is. (coughs) The belief they're who I am. Because the suffering is not so much in what arises. Sometimes I show up in the front, sometimes I'm in the back. Sometimes I'm good and people like what I do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes I get a note saying, it was really great what you said today. Sometimes I get notes saying, I really didn't like what you said today. Right? And if I'm attached to any of those identities, then I'm going to be happy when I get seen how I want to be seen and I'm going to be dropped when I'm not seen how I want to be seen. And the Buddha's speaking about a freedom that is not dependent on conditions. It's not dependent on what arises. It's not dependent on others' views and opinions or even your own views and opinions. And if, I don't know if you've noticed this yet, this might be more of the direction of where your practice is going, but some of you will have noticed if you've been practicing for some time, is that in terms of that sense of myself, it's something that keeps changing. If we define myself in terms of my mood, which is a very common thing, if you hang out here long enough, you'll realize that that's something that also keeps changing. Like right now, where are all those moods you had yesterday? all those mind states, all those beliefs about yourself that you were believing this morning, all those conclusions about who you are and what your practice is that you had three hours ago. And the closer we stay with what's happening, the more we see that it's flickering by. Not exactly like a movie, but something that has that, the momentum, it's, it's changing. And if, as we were doing today, opening our heart with all of this, this is a very powerful brew, a very fertile brew to start to see deeply and to investigate this nature of who I take myself to be.
And this is a poem from Thich Nhat Hanh, Vietnamese Zen master who uh, yeah, has seen a lot of suffering and has done a lot of practice. He's, it's a very old one, but some of you may know it, but speaks very well to this question. He says, please call me by my true names. Don't say that I will depart tomorrow. Even today, I'm still arriving. Look deeply. Every second I am arriving to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am a mayflower, metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I am a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant, selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo, with plenty of power in my hands, And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people. My joy is like spring, so warm, it makes the flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and laughter at once. So I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. Please call me by my true names. We hang out here long enough, we see many minds arise and pass within this one body that we can't deny that a human being is capable of many things. We see the seeds of it right here in our heart. We may have seen the action of it in our life, both lovely and unwholesome. And in recognizing that, being willing to kind of see, oh yeah, there's this and there's this and there's this. I'm all of it, and not one part of it defines me absolutely. In seeing that I'm all of it, I also start to see that I'm none of it, absolutely. It's like one Indian teacher, Srinasagadat Maharaj, he says, 
Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Right? I'm no thing. I'm no one thing here. Because it keeps changing. Wisdom tells me I, I can't say yes, I'm this or this or this. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. And between these two, my life flows. Wisdom tells me I'm no thing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between these two, my life flows. So one level of investigation is to be willing to have a question mark and curiosity about what I'm taking to be myself. Not making a view in, well, there's, the Buddha says there's no self, so I can just forget about all that stuff that's myself. We want to investigate this thing that seems to be myself. Zen Master Dogen, he said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. So this study of ourself as it arises and passes leaves us much more room to be enlightened by all things. second area of insight isn't so personal it isn't about what pushes me or lights me up it's more universal it's common to each one of us as is this final insight that Thich Nhat Hanh speaks to but another way of investigating that for ourselves in our practice is what the Buddha calls investigating phenomena in terms of the three characteristics. What are these three characteristics? He says these characteristics apply to everything. Anything you can point to, inner or outer, shares this. It's not personal to you. This is all things. He says all things are subject to birth and death. All things to arising and passing. This quality of Anicca is called in the Pali language. Staying with anything long enough, we see it comes, it goes. We see this life in this state of dynamic movement and that trying to hold on to it causes suffering. Trying to hold on in this way. Right? The second characteristic, there's suffering if we try and hold on to this world because it's in flux. I think I mentioned it the other day. If you try and hold on to something that's moving, grab tighter because I don't want you to change and it's like rope being pulled through those hands. You get rope burn. It's like... And the third characteristic, he says there's no abiding core no abiding little sense, no abiding sense of self that is permanent that travels through all of this experience. No little thing here that says Catherine with a kind of medallion on it, right? That's kind of abiding at the center. 
He's not denying that, yes, experience happens here and is localized here and is felt here. But something that we take to be me as an absolute thing. He says, check it out. Check it out. Investigate. See. You'll see that's common to every single thing. There's nothing, you know, even even philosophy, you know, can do this as an intellectual understanding. Right? You look at anything and you can deconstruct it. The bell is made by the person who made the bell and it has the metal and it has the person who shaped it and then it etc 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 it's not one thing that's absolute bell here right investigate investigate oneself through direct experience and see that it also frees us up it frees us up to come back into relationship with life with more interest with more amazement that it's here at all with more interest, with more compassion. Science knows this more and more deeply through investigating, looking closer and closer and closer and closer and closer, and what gets found. The closer they look is more and more and more and more and more and more space. Right? But it feels so solid. Feels so fixed, feels so 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 dense. Yeah, that's one level of perception. And our intellect may know that yes, it's you look deeply into something and it's reveals more space. But we can know that from the inside, such that it makes a difference. So this isn't esoteric. This isn't any different from you touching and starting to sense a little bit more spaciousness bit more room around thoughts or feelings or yourself or your body. bit more room around your emotions. What do you think that is? Apart from space. Spaciousness. And that can be known and recognized and can take us further. So the second level of insight of universal characteristics... Everything shares, whoever we are, whatever we are, whatever it is. And then finally, from this particular map, a third level of insight, which is what could be said, insight into the ultimate truth. The truth in which there is no coming and going, no birth and death, no arising and passing that can't be pointed to, because what well, can be pointed to, can't be uh, described because the mind that describes is the conceptual mind and the conceptual mind's strength and weakness is that it conceptualizes and it has to divide, therefore divide things. It's like conceptual scissors kind of dividing up the world. And yet it can be known it can be known, and this is where the Buddha uses that metaphor, as clear as color is to a person with good sight, this truth can be known. But it can't be had. But it can be known and realized and recognized right here and now. That isn't dependent on how good we are, how bad we are, what we've done, what we've succeeded at, what we've failed at. It's our nature whoever and whatever we are. And I'll finish with this piece from 
one Tibetan teacher. You know, with ultimate truth, you get different lineages saying, don't describe it or do describe it. or It's always a kind of big kind of philosophical battle about how you talk about that. And this is his beautiful pointing at this realization. Profound and tranquil, free from complexity, uncompounded. Right? It's not built up. It's not conditioned. Uncompounded. Luminous clarity. This is the depth of mind of the awakened ones. In this there is not a thing to be removed, nor is there anything that needs to be added. It is simply the immaculate, looking naturally at itself. Nor is there anything that needs to be added, nor is there a thing that needs to be removed. It is merely the immaculate, looking naturally at itself. So let's sit together for a moment.